many of us in this world find ourselves searching for ways to feel more alive. We move through our lives day after day, living through the same repetitive cycles and the same stressful patterns that often leave us feeling defeated, underappreciated, or unfulfilled. But what if there were a different way to perceive life? What if out there we were able to find the keys to a happy, healthy, and fulfilling reality in the lives that we're living right here, right now? For those of us who are looking for a way to transform our lives, for those of us who are looking to fully live in this moment, to change how we feel, how we perceive the world, and awaken to a better reality so we can fully live this life. This is the Live This Life Podcast. And I'm your host, Heath Cummings. I'm here to inspire you to ask yourself the question, are you living or are you killing time? Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Live This Life podcast. We'll be diving into chapter eight of The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. But before we do, just a couple of quick things. Huge thanks to everybody, really. I say this almost on every episode, but for your continued listenership. Uh, if people didn't care about this, if people didn't listen to it, there'd be nothing here, you know, in all reality. And this has is, is led to some amazing experiences, amazing relationships that I've developed with people. Um, you know, encounters that I've had with people, uh, you know, companies like Namaste Publishing who helped partner with us for the podcast on bringing this book to all the listeners and everything in between. So really, all of you who have supported this along the way uh, in your continued listenership, thank you so much for all of it. Um, and if you have appreciated the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. That's going to help us reach more and more listeners as time goes on. Um, there's a lot of competition out there for podcasts, and that is the holy grail of podcasting, really. So if you're inspired to do so, go leave a rating and those reviews. Um, I will read them on the air. So if you leave them on there, I will definitely read them on the upcoming episodes. And then also recently, I've been starting to mention that there is a new publication out there called Podcasting Magazine, and they do a monthly Hot 50 list. And I've been asking people, if you enjoy the show, go on there. I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. So you just got to click on there fill out the quick form. You can actually put three different shows on there. Um, but if we were able to get a mention from people and we get enough, we'll end up on the Hot 50 list, which would be phenomenal for exposure. So let's jump into Chapter 8 of The Power of Now. This one is called Enlightened Relationships. Um, actually, but before we do, in the last chapter, one of the biggest concepts that came out of that one, if you haven't listened to that one, it was episode number 33 that we did Chapter 7 on. Uh, one of the coolest concepts in that thing was, uh, you know, they talk about the portals of the unmanifested and the concepts of that is that the unmanifested is really like the God source. You know, anything can come out of that unmanifested, but to realize that potential, you have to realize that there is space between things that, you know, if there, there was no space between things, there would be no place for things to manifest. Um, you know, that's kind of like the contrast that we live through in life. That, that whole concept leads to so many other grander things. Um, you know, often we want things right now. We want things to show up in our life. You know, if we want money, we want it all right now. You know, if we, we want good relationships, we want that right now. But we wouldn't appreciate the things that we want if we didn't have the experience of not having them. If you constantly have all the things that you want right as soon as you want them, you won't appreciate 
the having of them because you don't know what the contrast is without them. And I really, for me, that's what I got out of that chapter. A huge bulk of that chapter is that concept. And it's one that I'm still slowly adapting to in my life. You know, I think of these different things that I want and I want to manifest, but the experience of not having them and letting that come and go is all part of the process. Um, And I really feel like that chapter was a huge part of that. But if you haven't heard that one, go back and check it out. But for right now, let's dive into chapter eight. And we're getting into the waning chapters of this. We're in the last few. So um, we'll be wrapping this one up in the next few episodes. And we'll be moving on to the next book. Still kind of undecided on what that's going to be. I've had a few suggestions here and there. And I'm working on another partnership with a really profound, um, really successful book. One that was a game changer for me. So I'm hoping to bring that one. If you have some ideas and I can bring in like a third or fourth choice, because I have a couple of them that I'm, I'm kind of throwing around in case something falls through. But if you have one that you want to suggest to the podcast, send me a message, whether it's an email connect at live this life.org um, or through any of the social media platforms. If you've got one that you think would benefit the listeners, that's kind of along the lines of the power of now type stuff. Um, go ahead and shoot me a message and I'll definitely put it into consideration. So let's get it growing and dive into chapter eight, Enlightened Relationships. And again, just for some people who maybe haven't been following along with this book the whole way, um, there are a couple of things. There are different subsections to each chapter, so I'll read that. And then in italics, it is basically a question that Eckhart Tolle has had from listeners along the way. And I will read those, and then sometimes in the book there is a little symbol that he places between paragraphs that is supposed to be an indication of a pause to sit and reflect. And I will play the little portion of music that I just played right before reading this. Um, So every time you hear that, that is just a moment to pause and reflect, whether you pause the podcast or just play through that little you know, 5 to 10 second clip of music and move on to the rest of the chapter. But that's what it's supposed to be intended for. So this section is called, Enter the Now from Wherever You Are. I always thought that true enlightenment is not possible. This is a question in italics. I always thought that that true enlightenment is not possible except through love in a relationship between a man and a woman. Isn't this what makes us whole again? How can one's life be fulfilled until that happens? Is that true in your experience? Has this happened to you? In italics, it says, not yet, but how could it be otherwise? I know that it will happen. In other words, you're waiting for an event in time to save you. Is this not the core error that we've been talking about? Salvation is not elsewhere in place or time. It is here and now. In italics, what does that statement mean? Quote, salvation is here and now. I don't understand it. I don't even know what salvation means. Most people pursue physical pleasures or various forms of psychological gratification because they believe that those things will make them happy or free from a feeling of fear or lack. Happiness may be perceived as a heightened sense of aliveness attained through physical pleasure or a more secure and more complete sense of self attained through some form of psychological gratification. This is the search for salvation from a state of unsatisfactoriness or insufficiency. Invariably, any satisfaction that they obtain is short-lived. 
So the condition of satisfaction or fulfillment is usually projected once again onto an imaginary point away from the here and now. Quote, when I obtain this or I am free of that, then I will be okay. This is the unconscious mindset that creates the illusion of salvation in the future. True salvation is fulfillment, peace, life in all its fullness. It is to be who you are, to feel within you the good that has no opposite, the joy of being with a capital B, the joy of being that depends on nothing outside itself. It is felt not as a passing experience, but as an abiding presence. In theistic language, it is to, quote, know God. Not as something outside you, but as your own innermost essence. True salvation is to know yourself as an inseparable part of the timeless and formless one life form that all exi- that which all that exists derives its being. True salvation is a state of freedom from fear, from suffering, from a perceived state of lack and insufficiency, and therefore from wanting, needing, grasping, and clinging. It is freedom from compulsive thinking, from negativity, and from above all, past and future as a psychological need. Your mind is telling you that you cannot get there from here. Something needs to happen, or you need to become this or that before you can be free and fulfilled. It is saying, in fact, that you need time, that you need to find, sort out, or do, achieve, acquire, become, or understand something before you can be free or complete. You see time as the means to salvation, whereas in truth it is the greatest obstacle to salvation. You think that you can't get there from where and who you are at this moment because you are not complete or good enough. But the truth is that here and now is the only point from where you can get there. You, quote, get there by realizing that you are there already. You find God in the moment you realize that you don't need to seek God. There is no only way to salvation. Any condition can be used, but no particular condition is needed. However, there is only one point of access, the now. There can be no salvation away from this moment. You are lonely and without a partner? Enter the now from there. You're in a relationship? Enter the now from there. There's nothing you can ever do or attain that will get you closer to salvation than it is at this moment. This may be hard to grasp for a mind accustomed to thinking that everything worthwhile is in the future, nor can anything that you ever did or that was done to you in the past prevent you from saying yes to what is and taking your attention deeply into the now. You cannot do this in the future. You do it now or not at all. The next section, love-hate relationships. Unless and until you access the conscious frequency of presence, all relationships, and particularly intimate relationships, are deeply flawed and ultimately dysfunctional. They may seem perfect for a while, such as when you are, quote, in love, but invariably that apparent perfection gets disrupted as arguments, conflicts, dissatisfaction, and emotional or even physical violence occur with increasing frequency. It seems that most, quote, love relationships become love-hate relationships before long. Love can then turn into savage attack, feelings of hostility, 
or complete withdrawal of affection at the flick of a switch. This is considered normal. The relationship then oscillates for a while, a few months or a few years, between the polarities of, quote, love and hate. And it gives you a much, it gives you as much pleasure as it gives you pain. It is not uncommon for couples to become addicted to those cycles. Their drama makes them feel alive. When a balance between the positive and negative polarities is lost and the negative destructive cycles occur with increasing frequency and intensity, which tends to happen sooner or later, then it will not be long before the relationship finally collapses. It may appear that if you could only eliminate the negative or destructive cycles, then all would be well and the relationship would flower beautifully. But alas, that is not possible. The polarities are mutually interdependent. You cannot have one without the other. The positive already contains within itself the as yet unmanifested negative. Both are in fact different aspects of the same dysfunction. I'm speaking here of what is commonly called romantic relationships, not of true love, which has no opposite because it arises from beyond the mind. Love as a continuous state is as yet very rare, as rare as conscious human beings. Brief and elusive glimpses of love, however, are possible whenever there is a gap in the stream of the mind. The negative side of a relationship is, of course, more easily recognizable as dysfunction than the positive one, and it is also easier to recognize the source of negativity in your partner than to see it in yourself. It can manifest in many forms. Possessiveness, jealousy, control, withdrawal, and unspoken resentment. The need to be right, insensitivity, and self-absorption, emotional demands, and manipulation. The urge to argue, criticize, judge, blame, or attack. Anger, unconscious revenge for past pain inflicted by a parent, rage, and physical violence. On the positive side, you are, quote, in love with your partner. This is at first a deeply satisfying state. You feel intensely alive. Your existence has suddenly become meaningful because someone needs you, wants you, and makes you feel special, and you do the same for him or her. When you are together, you feel whole. The feeling can become so intense that the rest of the world fades into insignificance. However, you may, have, you may also have noticed that there is, a, there is a neediness and clinging quality to that intensity. You become addicted to the other person. He or she acts on you like a drug. You are on a high when the drug is available, but even the possibility or the thought that he or she might no longer be there for you can lead to jealousy, possessiveness, attempts at manipulation through emotional blackmail, blaming and accusing, fear of loss. If the other person does leave you, this can give rise to the most intense hostility or the most profound grief and despair. In an instant, loving tenderness can turn into a savage attack or dreadful grief. Where is the love now? Can love change into its opposite in an instant? Was it love in the first place, or just an addictive grasping and clinging? The next section, addiction and the search for wholeness. The question italics, why should we become addicted to another person? The reason why the romantic love relationship is such an intense and universally sought after experience is that it seems to offer liberation from a deep seated state of fear, need, lack, and incompleteness 
that is part of the human condition in its unredeemed and unenlightened state. There is a physical as well as a psychological dimension to this state. On the physical level, you are obviously not whole, nor will you ever be. You are either a man or a woman, which is to say, one half of the whole. On this level, the longing for wholeness, the return to oneness, manifests as male-female attraction. Man's need for a woman, woman's need for a man. It is an almost irresistible urge for union with the opposite energy polarity. The root of this physical urge is a spiritual one. The longing for an end to duality, a return to the state of wholeness. Sexual union is the closest you can get to this state on a physical level. This is why it is the most deeply satisfying experience on the physical realm that it can offer. But sexual union is no more than a fleeting glimpse of wholeness, an instant of bliss. As long as it is unconsciously sought as a means of salvation, you are seeking the end of duality on the level of form where it cannot be found. You are given a tantalizing glimpse of heaven, but you are not allowed to dwell there and find yourself again in a separate body. On the psychological level, the sense of lack and incompleteness is, if anything, even greater than on the physical level. As long as you are identified with the mind, you have an externally derived sense of self. That is to say, you get your sense of who you are from things that ultimately have nothing to do with who you are. Your social role, possessions, external, experience, uh, external appearance, success, failures, belief systems, and so on. This false mind-made self, the ego, feels vulnerable, insecure, and is always seeking new things to identify with to give it a feeling that exists. But nothing is ever enough to give it lasting fulfillment. Its fear remains. Its sense of lack and neediness remains. But then, that special relationship comes along. It seems to be the answer to all the ego's problems and to meet all its needs. At least this is how it appears at first. All the other things that you derived your sense of self from before now become relatively insignificant. You now have a single focal point that replaces them all, gives meaning to your life, and through which you, you define your identity. The person you are, quote, in love with. You are no longer a disconnected fragment in an uncaring universe, or so it seems. Your world now has a center, the loved one. The fact that the center is outside you and that, therefore, you still have an externally derived sense of self does not seem to matter at first. What matters is that the underlying feelings of incompleteness, of fear, lack, and unfulfillment so characteristic of the egoic state are no longer there, or are they? Have they dissolved, or do they continue to exist underneath the happy surface reality? If in your relationship you experience both, quote, love and the opposite of love, attack, emotional violence, and so on, then it is likely that you are confusing ego attachment and addictive clinging with love. You cannot love your partner one moment and attack him or her the next. True love has no opposite. If your, quote, love has an opposite, then it is not love but a strong ego need for a more complete and deeper sense of self, a need that the other person temporarily meets. It is the ego's substitute for salvation, and for a short time it almost does feel like salvation. 
But there comes a point when your partner behaves in ways that fail to meet your needs, or rather those of your ego. The feelings of fear, pain, and lack that are an intrinsic part of egoic consciousness but have been covered up by the, quote, love relationship now resurface. Just as with every other addiction, you are on a high when the drug is available, but invariably there comes a time when the drug no longer works for you. When those painful feelings reappear, you feel them even more strongly than before. And what is more, you now perceive your partner as the cause of those feelings. This means that you project them outward and attack the other with all the savage violence that is part of your pain. This attack may awaken the partner's own pain, and he or she may encounter your attack, may counter your attack. At this point, the ego will still unconsciously hope. The ego is still unconsciously hoping that its attack or its attempts at manipulation will be sufficient punishment to induce your partner to change their behavior so that it can use them again as a cover-up for your pain. Every addiction arises from an unconscious refusal to face and move through your own pain. Every addiction starts with pain and ends with pain. Whatever the substance you are addicted to, alcohol, food, legal or illegal drugs, or a person, you are using something or someone to cover up your pain. That is why after the initial euphoria has passed, there is so much unhappiness, so much pain in intimate relationships. They do not cause pain and unhappiness. They bring out the pain and unhappiness that is already in you. Every addiction does that. Every addiction reaches a point where it does not work for you anymore. And then you feel the pain more intensely than ever. This is one reason why most people are always trying to escape from the present moment and are seeking some kind of salvation in the future. The first thing they might encounter if they focus their attention on the now is their own pain. And this is what they fear. If they only knew how easy it is to access in the now the power of presence that dissolves the past in its pain, the reality that dissolves the illusion. If they only knew how close they are to their own reality, how close to God. Avoidance of relationships in an attempt to avoid pain is not the answer either. The pain is there anyway. Three failed relationships in as many years are more likely to force you into awakening than three years on a desert island or shut away in your room. But if you could bring intense presence into your aloneness, that would work for you too. The next section, from addictive to enlightened relationships. In italics it says, can we change an addictive relationship into a true one? Yes. Being present and intensifying your presence by taking your attention ever more deeply into the now, whether you're living alone or with a partner, this remains the key. For love to flourish, the light of your presence needs to be strong enough so that you no longer get taken over by the thinker or the pain body and mistake them for who you are. To know yourself as the being underneath the thinker, the stillness underneath the mental noise, the love and the joy underneath the pain is freedom, salvation, enlightenment. To disidentify from the pain body is to bring presence into the pain and thus transmute it. 
To disidentify from thinking is to be the silent watcher of your thoughts and behavior, especially the repetitive patterns of your mind and the roles played by the ego. If you stop investing it with, quote, selfness, the mind loses its compulsive quality, which basically is the compulsion to judge, and so to resist what is, which creates conflict, drama, and new pain. In fact, the moment that judgment stops through acceptance of what is, you are free of the mind. You have made room for love, for joy, for peace. First you stop judging yourself, then you stop judging your partner. The great catalyst for change in a relationship is complete acceptance of your partner as he or she is, without needing to judge or change them in any way. That immediately takes you beyond ego. All mind games and all addictive clinging are then over. There are no victims, no perpetrators anymore, no accuser and accused. This is also the end of all codependency, of being drawn into someone else's unconscious pattern and thereby enabling it to continue. You will then either separate in love or move ever more deeply into the now together, into being. Can it be that simple? Yes, it is that simple. Love is a state of being. Your love is not outside. It is deep within you. You can never lose it, and it cannot leave you. It is not dependent on some other body, some external form. In the stillness of your presence, you can feel your own formless and timeless reality as the unmanifested life that animates your physical form. You can then feel the same life deep within every other human and every other creature. You look beyond the veil of form and separation. This is the realization of oneness. This is love. What is God? The eternal one life underneath all forms of life. What is love? To feel the presence of that one life deep within yourself and within all creatures. To be it. Therefore, all love is the love of God. Love is not selective, just as the light of the sun is not selective. It does not make one person special. It is not exclusive. Exclusivity is not the love of God, but the love of ego. However, the intensity with which true love is felt can vary. There may be one person who reflects your love back to you more clearly and more intensely than others. And if that person feels the same toward you, it can be said that you are in a love relationship with him or her. The bond that connects you with that person is the same bond that connects you with the person sitting next to you on a bus or with a bird or a tree or a flower. Only the degree of intensity with which it is felt differs. Even in an otherwise addictive relationship, there may be moments when something more real shines through, something beyond your mutual addictive needs. These are moments when both your you, your and your partner's mind briefly subside and the pain body is temporarily in a dormant state. This may sometimes happen during physical intimacy, or when you're both witnessing the miracle of childbirth, or in the presence of death, or when one of you is seriously ill. Anything that renders the mind powerless. When this happens, your being, which is usually buried underneath the mind becomes revealed, and it is this that makes true communication possible. True communication is communion. 
The realization of oneness, which is love. Usually this is quickly lost again unless you are able to stay present enough to keep out the mind and its old patterns. As soon as the mind and mind identification return, you are no longer yourself but a mental image of yourself, and you start playing games and roles again to get your ego needs met. You are a human mind again, pretending to be a human being, interacting with another mind, playing a drama called, quote, love. Although brief glimpses are possible, love cannot flourish unless you are permanently free of mind identification and your presence is intense enough to have dissolved the pain body. Or you can at least remain present as the watcher. The pain body cannot then take you over and so become destructive of love. The next section, Relationships as Spiritual Practice. As the egoic mode of consciousness in all the social, political, and economic structures that it carried enter the final stage of collapse, the relationships between men and women reflect the deep state of crisis in which humanity now finds itself. As humans have become increasingly identified with their mind, most relationships are not rooted in being and so turn into a source of pain and become dominated by problems and conflict. Millions are now living alone or as single parents unable to establish an intimate relationship or unwilling to repeat the insane drama of past relationships. Others go from one relationship to another, from one pleasure and pain cycle to another, in search of the elusive goal of fulfillment through union with the opposite energy polarity. Still others compromise and continue to be together in dysfunctional relationships in which negativity prevails for the sake of the children or security through force of habit, fear of being alone, or some other mutually beneficial arrangement, or even through the unconscious addiction to the excitement of emotional drama and pain. However, every crisis represents not only danger, but also opportunity. If relationships energize and magnify egoic mind patterns and activate the pain body, as they do at this time, why not accept the fact rather than try to escape from it? Why not cooperate with it instead of avoiding relationships or continuing to pursue the phantom of an ideal partner as an answer to your problems or a means of feeling fulfilled? The opportunity that is concealed within every crisis does not manifest until all the facts of any given situation are acknowledged and fully accepted. As long as you, as long as you deny them, as long as you try to escape from them or wish that things were different, the window of opportunity does not open up and you remain trapped inside that situation, which will remain the same or deteriorate further. With the acknowledgement and acceptance of the facts also comes a degree of freedom from them. For example, when you know there are there is disharmony and you hold that, quote, knowing, through your knowing a new factor has come in and the disharmony cannot remain unchanged. When you know you are not at peace, your knowing creates a still space that surrounds your non-peace in a loving and tender embrace and then transmutes your non-peace into peace. As far as inner transformation is concerned, there is nothing that you can do about it. You cannot transform yourself and you certainly cannot transform your partner or anyone else. All you can do is create a space for transformation to happen, for grace and love to enter.
So whenever your relationship is not working, whenever it brings out the quote madness in you and your partner, be glad. What was unconscious is being brought up to the light. It is an opportunity for salvation. Every moment, hold the knowing of that moment, particularly of your inner state. There is anger. Know that there is anger. If there's jealousy, defensiveness, the urge to argue, the need to be right, an inner child demanding love and attention or emotional pain of any kind, whatever it is, know the reality of that moment and hold the knowing. The relationship then becomes your sadhana, your spiritual practice. If you observe unconscious behavior in your partner, hold it in the loving embrace of your knowing so that you won't react. Unconsciousness and knowing cannot ex coexist for long. Even if the knowing is only in the other person and not in the one who is acting out the unconsciousness. The energy form that lies beyond hostility and attack finds the presence of love absolutely intolerable. If you react at all to your partner's unconsciousness, you become unconscious yourself. But if you then remember to know your reaction, nothing is lost. Humanity is under great pressure to evolve because it is our only chance of survival as a race. This will affect every aspect of your life and close relationships in particular. Never before have relationships been as problematic and conflict-ridden as they are now. As you may have noticed, they are not here to make you happy or fulfilled. If you continue to pursue the goal of salvation through a relationship, you will be disillusioned again and again. But if you accept that the relationship is here to make you conscious instead of happy, then the relationship will offer you salvation and you will be aligning yourself with the higher consciousness that wants to be born into this world. For those who hold on to the old patterns, there will be increasing pain, violence, confusion, and madness. In italics it says, I suppose that it takes two to make a relationship into a spiritual practice as you suggest. For example, my partner is still acting out his old patterns of jealousy and control. I have pointed this out many times, but he is unable to see it. How many people does it take to make your life into a spiritual practice? Never mind if your partner will not cooperate. Sanity, consciousness, can only come into this world through you. You do not need to wait for the world to become sane or for anybody or for somebody else to become conscious before you can be enlightened. You may wait forever. Do not accuse each other of being unconscious. The moment you start to argue, you've identified with a mental position and are now defending not only that position, but also your sense of self. The ego is in charge. You've become unconscious. At times, it may be appropriate to point out certain aspects of your partner's behavior. If you are very alert, very present, you can do so without ego involvement, without blaming, accusing, or making the other wrong. When your partner behaves unconsciously, relinquish all judgment. Judgment is either to confuse someone's unconscious behavior with who they are or to project your own unconscious into some another person and mistake that for who they are. To relinquish judgment does not mean that you do not need to recognize dysfunction and unconsciousness when you see it. It means, quote, being the knowing rather than, quote, being the reaction and the judge. You will then either be totally free of reaction or you may react and still be the knowing 
the space in which the reaction is watched and allowed to be. Instead of fighting the darkness, you bring in the light. Instead of reacting to delusion, you see the delusion yet at the same time look through it. Being the knowing creates a clear space of loving presence that allows all things and all people to be as they are. No greater catalyst for transformation exists. If you practice this, your partner cannot stay with you and remain unconscious. If you both agree that the relationship will be your spiritual practice, so much the better. You can then express your thoughts and feelings to each other as soon as they occur, or as soon as a reaction comes up, so that you do not create a time gap in which an unexpressed or unacknowledged emotion or grievance can fester and grow. Learn to give expression to what you feel without blaming. Learn to listen to your partner in an open, non-defensive way. Give your partner space for expressing himself or herself. Be present. Accusing, defending, attacking, all those patterns are designed to strengthen or protect the ego or to get its needs met when will then become redundant. Giving space to others and to yourself is vital. Love cannot flourish without it. When you've removed the two factors that are destructive of relationships, when the pain body has been transmuted and you are no longer identified with mind and mental positions, and if your partner has done the same, you'll experience the bliss of the flowering of relationship. Instead of mirroring to each other your pain and your unconsciousness, instead of satisfying your mutual addictive ego needs, you will reflect back to each other the love that you feel deep within. The love that comes with the realization of your oneness with all that is. This is the love that has no opposite. If your partner is still identified with the mind and the pain body while you are already free, this will represent a major challenge. Not to you, but to your partner. It is not easy to live with an enlightened person, or rather, it is so easy that the ego finds it extremely threatening. Remember that the ego needs problems, conflict, and quote, enemies to strengthen the sense of separateness on which it identi identity depends. The enlightened partner's mind will be deeply frustrated because its fixed positions are not resisted, which means they will become shaky and weak. And there is even the quote, danger that they may collapse altogether, resulting in loss of self. The pain body is demanding feedback and not getting it. The need for argument, drama, and conflict is not being met. But beware, some people who are unresponsive, withdrawn, insensitive, or cut off from their feelings may think and try to convince others that they are enlightened, or at least that there is, quote, nothing wrong with them and everything wrong with their partner. Men tend to do that more than women. They may see their female partners as irrational or emotional, but if you can feel your emotions, you're not far from the radiant inner body just been underneath. If you are mainly in your head, the distance is much greater, and you need to bring consciousness into the emotional body before you can reach the inner body. If there isn't an emanation of love and joy, complete presence and openness toward all beings, then it is not enlightenment. Another indicator is how a person behaves in difficult or challenging situations or when things, quote, go wrong. If your enlightenment is egoic, self-delusion, then life will give you a challenge that will bring out your unconscious in whatever form, as anger, fear, defensiveness, judgment, depression, and so on. 
If you're in a relationship, many of your challenges will come through your partner. For example, a woman may be challenged by an unresponsive male partner who lives almost entirely in his head. She'll be challenged by his inability to hear her, to give her attention and space to be, which is due to his lack of presence. The absence of love in the relationship, which is usually more keenly felt by a woman than a man, will trigger the woman's pain body, and through it she will attack her partner, blame, criticize, make wrong, and so on. This in turn now becomes his challenge, to defend himself against her pain body's attack, which he sees as a totally unwarranted. He will become even more deeply entrenched in his mental positions as he justifies, defends himself, or counterattacks. Eventually, this may activate his own pain body. When both partners have thus been taken over, a level of deep unconsciousness has been reached of emotional violence, savage attack, and counterattack. It will not subside until both pain bodies have replenished themselves and then enter the dormant stage. Until the next time. This is only one of an endless number of possible scenarios. Many volumes have been written, many more could be written, about the ways in which unconsciousness is brought out in male-female relationships. But as I said earlier, once you understand the root of the dysfunction, you do not need to explore its countless manifestations. Let's briefly look again at the scenario I've just described. Every challenge that it contains is actually a disguised opportunity for salvation. At every stage of the unfolding dysfunction process, freedom from unconsciousness is possible. For example, the woman's hostility could become a signal for the man to come out of his mind-identified state, awaken into the now, become present, instead of becoming even more identified with his mind, even more unconscious. Instead of, quote, being the pain body, the woman could be the knowing that watches the emotional pain in herself, thus accessing the power of the now and initiating the transmutation of the pain. This would remove the compulsive and automatic outward projection of it. She could then express her feelings to her partner. There is no guarantee, of course, that he will listen, but it gives him a good chance to become present and certainly breaks the insane cycle of the involuntary acting out of old mind patterns. If the woman misses that opportunity, the man could watch his own mental emotional reaction to her pain, his own defensiveness rather than being the reaction. He could then watch his own pain body be triggered and thus bring, un- bring consciousness into his emotions. In this way, a clear and still space of pure awareness could come into being. The knowing, the silent witness, the watcher. This awareness does not deny the pain and yet is still beyond it. It allows the pain to be and yet transmutes it, transmutes it at the same time. It accepts everything and transforms everything. A door could have opened up for her through which she could easily join him in that space. If you were consistently or at least predominantly present in your relationship. The next section, why women are closer to enlightenment. The question italics. Are the obstacles to enlightenment the same for a man as for a woman? Yes, but the emphasis is different. Generally speaking, it is easier for a woman to feel and be in her body, so she is naturally closer to being, to potentially closer to enlightenment than a man. 
This is why many ancient cultures instinctively choose female figures or analogies to represent or describe the formless and transcendental reality. It was often seen as a womb that gives birth to everything in creation and sustains and nourishes it during its life as a form. In the Tao Te Ching, one of the most ancient and profound books ever written, the Tao, which could be translated as being, is described as infinite, eternally present, the mother of the universe. Naturally, women are closer to it than men since they virtually, quote, embody the unmanifested. What is more, all creatures and all things must eventually return to the source. Quote, all things vanish into the Tao. It alone endures, end quote. Since the source is seen as female, this is represented as the light and dark side of the archetypal, archetypal feminine in psychology and mythology. The goddess or divine mother has two aspects. She gives life and she takes life. When the mind took over and humans lost touch with the reality of their divine essence, they started to think of God as a male figure. Society became male-dominated, and the female was made subordinate to the male. I'm not struggling a re suggesting a return to earlier female representations of the divine. Some people now use the term goddess instead of God. They are readdressing a balance between male and female that was lost a long time ago, and that is good. But it is still a representation and a concept, perhaps temporarily useful, just as a map or signpost is temporarily useful, but more a hindrance than a help when you are ready to realize the reality beyond all concepts and images. What does remain true, however, is that the energy frequency of the mind appears to be essentially male. The mind resists, fights for control, uses, manipulates, attacks, tries to grasp and possess, and so on. This is why the traditional God is patriarchal, controlling authority figure and often angry man who you should live in fear of, as the Old Testament suggests. This God is projection of the human mind. To go beyond the mind and reconnect with the deeper reality of being, very different qualities are needed. Surrender, non-judgment, and an openness that, that allows life to be instead of resisting it. The capacity to hold all things in the loving embrace of your knowing. All these qualities are much more closely related to the female principle. Whereas mind energy is hard and rigid, being energy is soft and yielding and yet indefinitely more powerful than mind. The mind runs our civilization, whereas being is in charge of all life on our planet and beyond. Being is the very intelligence whose visible manifestation is the physical universe. Although women are potentially closer to it, men can also access it within themselves. At this time, the vast majority of men, as well as women, are still in the grip of the mind, identified with the thinker and the pain body. This, of course, is what prevents enlightenment and the flowering of love. As a general rule, the major obstacle for men tends to be the thinking mind and the major obstacle for women, the pain body. Although in certain individual cases, the opposite may be true. In others, the two factors may be equal. The next section, dissolving the collective female pain body. In italics it says, why is the pain body more of an obstacle for women? The pain body usually has a collective as well as a personal aspect. 
The personal aspect is the accumulated residue of emotional pain suffered in one's own past. The collective one is the pain accumulated in the collective human psyche over thousands of years through the disease, torture, war, murder, cruelty, madness, and so on. Everyone's personal pain body also partakes of this collective pain body. There are different strands in the collective pain body. For example, certain races or countries in which extreme forms of strife and violence occur have a heavier collective pain body than others. Anyone with a strong pain body and not enough consciousness to disidentify from it will not only continuously or periodically be forced to relive their emotional pain, but may also easily become either the perpetrator or the victim of violence, depending on whether their pain body is predominantly active or passive. On the other hand, they may also potentially be potentially closer to enlightenment. This potential isn't necessarily realized, of course, but if you are trapped in a nightmare, you will probably be more strongly motivated to awaken than someone who is just caught up in the ups and downs of an ordinary dream. Apart from her personal pain body, every woman has her share in what could be described as the collective female pain body, unless she is fully conscious. This consists of accumulated pain suffered by women partly through male subjugation of the female, through slavery, exploitation, rape, childbirth, child loss, and so on, over thousands of years. The emotional or physical pain that for many women proceeds and coincides with the menstrual flow is the pain body in its collective aspect that awakens from its dormancy at that time, although it can be triggered at other times too. It restricts the free flow of life energy through the body, of which menstruation is a physical representation. Let's dwell on this for a moment and see how it can become an opportunity for enlightenment. Often a woman is, quote, taken over by the pain body at that time. It has an extremely powerful energetic charge that can easily pull you into unconscious identification with it. You are then actively possessed by an energy field that occupies your inner space and pretends to be you. But of course, it is not you at all. It speaks through you, acts through you, thinks through you. It will create negative situations in your life so it can feed on the energy. It wants more pain in whatever form. I have described this process already. It can be vicious and destructive. It is pure pain, past pain, and it is not you. The number of women who are now approaching this fully conscious state already exceed that of men and will be growing even faster in the years to come. Men may catch up with them in the end, but for some considerable time there will be a gap between consciousness of men and that of women. Women are regaining the function that is their birthright and, therefore, comes to them more naturally than it does to men. To be a bridge between the manifested world and the unmanifested, between physicality and spirit. Your main task as a woman now is to transmute the pain body so it no longer becomes between you and your true self, the essence of who you are. Of course, you also have to deal with the other obstacle to enlightenment, which is the thinking mind. But the intense presence you generate when dealing with the pain body will also free you from identification with the mind. The first thing to remember is this. As long as you make an identity for yourself out of the pain, you cannot become free of it. As long as part of your sense of self is invested in your emotional pain, you will unconsciously resist or sabotage every attempt that you make to heal that pain. Why? Quite simply because you want to keep yourself intact, and the pain has become an essential part of you. 
This is an unconscious process, and the only way to overcome it is to make, make it conscious. To suddenly see that you are or have been attached to your pain can be quite a shocking realization. The moment you realize this, you've broken the attachment. The pain body is an energy field, almost like an entity, that has become temporarily lodged in your inner space. It is life energy that has become trapped, energy that is no longer flowing. Of course, the pain body is there because of certain things that happened in the past. It is the living past in you, and if you identify with it, you identify with the past. A victim identity is the belief that the past is more powerful than the present, which is the opposite of the truth. It is the belief that other people and what they did to you are responsible for who you are now, for your emotional pain or your inability to be your true self. The truth is that the only power there is is contained within this moment. It is the power of your presence. Once you know that, you also realize that you are responsible for your inner space now. Nobody else is. And that the past cannot prevail against the power of the now. So identification prevents you from dealing with the pain body. Some women who are already conscious enough to have relinquished their victim identity on the personal level are also still holding on to a collective victim identity. Quote, what men did to women. They are right, and they are also wrong. They are right in as much as the collective female pain body is in large part due to male violence inflicted on women and a representation of the female principle throughout the planet over, mil over millennia. They are wrong if they derive a sense of self from this fact and thereby keep themselves imprisoned in a collective victim identity. If a woman is still holding on to anger, resentment, or condemnation, she is holding on to her pain body. This may give her a comforting sense of identity, of solidarity with other women, but it is keeping her in bondage to the past and blocking full access to her essence and true power. If women exclude themselves from men, that fosters a sense of separation and therefore a strengthening of the ego. And the stronger the ego, the more distant you are from your true nature. So do not use the pain body to give you an identity. Use it for enlightenment instead. Transmute it into consciousness. One of the best times for this is during menses. I believe that in the years to come, many women will enter the fully consciousness state during that time. Usually, it is a time of unconsciousness for many women, as they are taken over by the collective female pain body. Once you've reached a certain level of consciousness, however, you can reverse this. So instead of becoming unconscious, you become more conscious. I've described the basic process already, but let me take you through it again this time with a special reference to the collective female pain body. When you know that the menstrual flow is approaching, before you feel the first signs of what is commonly called premenstrual tension, the awakening of the collective female pain body, become very alert and inhibit, inhabit your body as fully as possible. When the first sign appears, you need to be alert enough to, quote, catch it before it takes you over. For example, the first sign may be sudden strong irritation or flash of anger, or maybe purely physical symptom. Whatever it is, 
Catch it before it can take over your thinking or behavior. This simply means putting the spotlight of your attention on it. If it is an emotional, if it is an emotion, feel the strong energy charge behind it. Know that it is the pain body. At the same time, be the knowing. That is to say, be aware of your conscious presence and feel its power. Any emotion that you take your presence into will quickly subside and become transmuted. If it is a purely physical symptom, the attention that you give it will prevent it from turning into an emotion or thought. Then continue to be alert and wait for the next sign of the pain body. When it appears, catch it again in the same way as before. Later, when the pain body has fully awakened from its dormant state, you may experience considerable turbulence in your inner space for a while, perhaps for several days. Whatever form this takes, stay present. Give it your complete attention. Watch the turbulence inside you. Know it is there. Hold the knowing and be the knowing. Remember, do not let the pain body use your mind and take over your thinking. Watch it. Feel its energy directly inside your body. As you know, full attention means full acceptance. Through sustained attention and thus acceptance, there comes transmutation. The pain body becomes transformed into a radiant consciousness, just as a piece of wood, when placed in or near a fire, itself it's transformed into fire. Menstruation will then become not only a joyful and fulfilling expression of your womanhood, but also a sacred time of transmutation, when you give birth to a new consciousness. Your true nature then shines forth, both in its female aspect as the goddess and in its transcendental aspect as the divine being that you are beyond male and female duality. If your male partner is conscious enough, he can help you with the practice I have just described by holding the frequency of intense presence particularly at this time. If he stays present whenever you fall back into unconscious identification with the pain body, which can and will happen at first, you'll be able to quickly rejoin him in that state. This means that whatever the pain body temporarily takes over, whether during menses or at other times your partner, will not mistake it for who you are. Even if the pain body attacks him, as it probably will, he will not react to it as if it were, quote, you. Withdraw or put up some kind of defense. He will hold the space of intense presence. Nothing else is needed for transmutation. At other times, you will be able to do the same for him or help him reclaim consciousness from the mind by drawing his attention into the here and now whenever he becomes identified with his thinking. In this way, a permanent energy field of a pure and high frequency will arise between you. No illusion, no pain, no conflict. Nothing that is not you and nothing that is not love can survive in it. This represents the fulfillment of the divine, transpersonal purpose of your relationship. It becomes a vortex of consciousness that will draw in many others. And now I'll pause. End of this chapter, give up the relationship with yourself. In italics it says, When one is fully conscious, would one still have a need for a relationship? Would a man still feel drawn to a woman? Or would a woman still feel incomplete without a man? Enlightened or not, you are either a man or a woman. So on the level of your form identity, you are not complete. 
you are one half of the whole. This incompleteness is felt as a male-female attraction, the pull toward the opposite energy polarity, no matter how conscious you are. But in that state of interconnectedness, you feel this pull somewhere on the surface or periphery of your life. Anything that happens to you in that state feels somewhat like that. The whole world seems like waves or ripples on the surface of a vast and deep ocean. You are that ocean, and, of course, you are also a ripple. But a ripple that has realized its true identity as the ocean, and compared to that vastness and depth, the world of waves and ripples is not all that important. This does not mean that you don't relate deeply to other people or, or to your partner. In fact, you can relate deeply only if you are conscious of being. Coming from being, you are able to focus beyond the veil of form. In being, male and female are one. Your form may continue to have certain needs, but being alone has none. It is already complete and whole. It is already complete and whole. If those needs are met, that is beautiful. But whether or not they are met makes no difference to your deep inner state. So it is perfectly possible for an enlightened person, if the need for the male or female polarity is not met, to feel a sense of lack or incompleteness on the outer level of his or her being, yet at the same time be totally complete, fulfilled, and at peace within. In italics it says, In the quest for enlightenment, is being gay a help or hindrance, or does it not make any difference? As you approach adulthood, uncertainty about your sexuality, followed by the realization that you are, quote, different from others, may force you to disidentify from socially conditioned patterns of thought and behavior. This will automatically raise your level of consciousness above that of unconscious majority, whose members unquestioningly take on board all inherited patterns. In that respect, being gay can be a help. Being an outsider, to some extent, someone who does not, quote, fit in with others or is rejected by them for whatever reason makes life difficult, but it also places you in an advantage as far as enlightenment is concerned. It takes you out of unconsciousness almost by force. On the other hand, if you then develop a sense of identity based on your gayness, you have escaped one trap only to fall into another. You will play roles in games dictated by a mental image you have of yourself as gay. You will become unconscious. You will become unreal. Underneath your ego mask, you will become very unhappy. If this happens to you, being gay will have become a hindrance. But you always get another chance, of course. Acute unhappiness can be a great awakener. In italics. Is it not true that you need to have a good relationship with yourself and love yourself before you can have a fulfilling relationship with another person? If you cannot be at ease with yourself when you are alone, you will seek a relationship to cover up your unease. You can be sure that unease will then reappear in some other form within the relationship and you will probably hold your partner responsible for it. All you really need to do is accept this moment fully. You are then at ease in the here and now and at ease with yourself. But do you need to have a relationship with yourself at all? Why can't you just be yourself? When you have a relationship with yourself, you've just split yourself into two, I and myself, subject and object. That mind-created duality is the root cause of all unnecessary complexity, of all problems and conflict in your life. 
In the state of enlightenment, you are yourself. You and yourself merge into one. You do not judge yourself. You do not feel sorry for yourself. You are not proud of yourself. You do not love yourself. You do not hate yourself, and so on. The split caused by self-reflective consciousness is healed, its curse removed. There is no, quote, self that you need to protect, defend, or feed anymore. When you are enlightened, there is one relationship that you no longer have, the relationship with yourself. Once you have given that up, all your other relationships will be love relationships. And that is the end of chapter eight, the enlightened relationships. This is definitely a chapter containing a lot of information that many of us, I think, glaze right over. Um, and a lot of it still, I mean, this, this book is quite a tongue twister the way that Eckhart writes it. Um, and if you've ever listened to any of his videos, if you ever listened to him do public talks and stuff like that, um, definitely I think a little bit of the, the language barrier that comes through when reading um, is definitely a tongue twister. You know, I do the best that I can with this, but sometimes when you're getting through a paragraph, you, I mean, you don't hear any of the cuts and retakes that I have to do while I'm reading these chapters, which is often how long it, it you know, it, it takes me a lot of while to put these out. Um, just because I go back because the paragraphs make absolutely no sense sometimes when I read them the way that they are sort of put into context in the book. Um, but definitely this this last part was one that was huge with me because I'm coming across the theme of duality a lot. Um, I feel like our world is split into a major uh, duality right now with the current state of the world with a lot of the things that are going on and political unrest and and so on. And talking about transcending that duality is, is an upcoming subject of an episode uh, that'll be airing pretty soon. Um, but I'm glad this chapter touched in on that because transcending whatever duality that we've been split into and realizing the whole, um, I feel like that is how you level up in another way in your life. And just talking about that relationship of the I and myself and the you and yourself um, being able to transcend whatever that means and looking at the bigger picture, whether that's interacting with other people, whether you are observing your thoughts, when you can separate the you and yourself and the, the, the difference between you and somebody else, when you transcend those things, I think it gives you a whole different perspective on life. It helps you not be so frustrated with people. It helps you not be so judgmental with people. Um, it, it definitely lets you move through certain circumstances in your life with a whole different level of understanding, which reduces the anger, the conflict, you know, the, the duality that exists of my position and your position. And a lot of conflict resolution comes from that. The, the concepts of conflict, conflict resolution come from meeting in the middle, which is basically the overall gist of oneness. You know, coming to a realization of what both people are trying to get to the same end goal, um, that's that's the end result of a conflict, is making both people walk away feel like they're the winner. And I really feel like the end of this chapter touched on that. I feel like, you know, if we could do that a lot in our lives, transcend the duality, you know, Democrat, Republican, uh, me, you, male, female, you know, if we, we transcend all of these different things, to realize we are one bigger piece of a bigger whole. It doesn't get rid of our identity, but it prevents us from identifying it, identifying with it too much so that we don't become rooted and stay in that spot. We continue to evolve into a higher level. You know, not saying that there's not black, there's not white, you know, saying that there's humanity. That doesn't take away 
what you are, what you want to identify with. It just shows you a perspective of the greater whole. And when you get to that greater whole, you then naturally move into the duality of whatever that next level is. You know, the, the, the whole of this level is only half of the next level, if that makes sense. We'll get into that when we get into the episode of duality, but um, definitely a great chapter, very long one, a lot of information there. Um, and we're wrapping up this book. I mean, we're getting down to the waning ends of this, this book. Uh, it's been a great one. Definitely, like I said before, looking for our next great book to read on the air. Um, so if you have any suggestions, hit me up on either social media, email, whatever you've got. Um, but definitely looking to take some some suggestions because I think we only have one or two chapters left in this one. So uh, if you have any, please let me know. Otherwise, keep living in the now moment. Keep living in that power. Now is the only moment you will ever have. You know, the, the moments that have gone by have gone by. The ones that haven't come up yet will just be a moment of now when they arrive. And that's the only moment you have to actually make a move to take power in your life. And when you realize that, that's why I'm reading this book, but when it's all over, hopefully, if you don't realize that, you'll realize it when it's over. In that moment of now, and, uh, and realize you know, why this book has been so pivotal in so many people's lives. Um, and definitely some of this stuff is heavy. So listen over and over. That's why I put it on the podcast and uh, put it out there for everybody. Because it is a book that you can listen to and still, like a great movie, you could watch it a hundred times and still not see something and see something new every time. So same with the listens of this book. All right, folks. Until next time, keep living. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Yeah.